This podcast is brought to you by nbs.fm, the no bullshit podcast network. Cynthia Delaria is a self-proclaimed startup ninja. She knows how to dig into any idea and find the gold, the killer feature, the thing users absolutely cannot live without. And she helps entrepreneurs turn their idea into a business that will make real money. She began coding at eight years old and over the past several decades has learned what great technology implementations look like from some of the smartest people in the industry. Her past experiences building startups have given her a unique lens which allow her to examine what would work for other business types in tech and how to apply those processes and methodologies for other people who have great tech ideas. She's developed the curriculum for the Raker Technologies and GotAnAppIdea.com startup program based on what she did with her own companies and those of her clients, all for one guiding purpose, to help new app and tech entrepreneurs spend as little time and money as possible evaluating their idea and helping them get to a go-no-go decision quickly and efficiently. She's even developed a process to help stakeholders project managers, product managers, and IT professionals at all size companies test new ideas without impacting their teams, roadmaps, and corporate priorities. In short, she helps companies and entrepreneurs get things done. Now, please enjoy this interview with Adam Callow and Cynthia Delaria, CEO and co-founder of Raker Technologies. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Startup Diary. How are you? I am doing great, Adam. How are you? I'm really good. I'm, and I always say I'm really good, but today I actually mean it. I am really good. Things are things are on the up and up in the business right now, which is, which is the first Yay. time in about four months, to be honest. Oh, so, I'd love to hear that. Tell me it's, about it's, where... Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a very weird time. And, uh, you know, anytime you feel like you're coming out of the dark and back into the light is a good thing. <laughs> 100%. It's a long tunnel, but I can see the light now. There's a little bit of light in the tunnel and that's just <laughs> hey. enough to keep me smiling. And you know what? It's not a train. <laughs> like it. <laughs> I like it. Well, to be honest, my, the cynic in my head went, I like it. And then I go, I'm not sure if it's a train. <laughs> I can't hear what if train. it is a train? Oh my gosh. <laughs> we'll build another tunnel. That's what we do in this business. That's right. That's exactly right. Cindy, whereabouts are you in the world right now? So I am sitting just in a suburb of Denver, Cal- uh, Colorado called uh, Littleton. Cool. So I'm in the, I'm in the States, Midwest. <laughs> nice. Um, listen, let's jump straight into it. Uh, for the people who are listening to this show that might not have an idea who Cynthia is right now, could you just give me a one minute overview of you, your career, sort of soup to nuts, the whole thing. And then we're going to take it all the way back to your first startup. So I think there's some interesting learnings there for the audience. Yeah, totally. So I actually started coding when I was eight years old. Um, Over the next seven years, I learned a bunch of different stuff and got into coding for the web. Started my first company when I was 15, uh, doing websites and uh, web development work and message boards and stuff like that for business owners. Um, Transitioned that and sold it uh, four years later when I was 19. Spent a couple of years working for some other people, doing some stuff, and then I started my second startup, which was doing uh, early key encryption technology for online downloads and online distribution of software. Uh, sold that one about four and a half, five years after I started it. Um, and then just kind of started working with other people who um, were building startups who had questions. And uh, I started a SaaS company um, that does um, 
software for the airline industry. So we handle crew and pilot bidding. Uh, and that one's been running for about six and a half years now. Um, and then I have formally started doing coaching for entrepreneurs looking to get into a tech startup, build a tech startup. And then um, also coaching women in technology looking to advance their careers and um, shatter the glass ceiling. So come a long way in 25 years. <laughs> I absolutely love all that. And if anyone's listening to this right now and they're thinking, well, that was a lot of stuff to take in and <laughs> don't worry, I'm going to unpack the whole thing. Um, I guess, I guess from my side, just to, I guess, give you a quick heads up is where I'd love to take this is for me selfishly. Uh, and the truth of the matter is if you look behind the curtain, the reason I do this show is so I can learn from people like yourself. Um, yeah. There's, there was an interesting thing that piqued my interest around the fact that you had, uh, early success uh, and mm -hmm. from quick mass sort of between the ages of like 19 and 25 there was two exits in that time period if i, if I did my math right as we were going yes that. that's correct uh would love to talk about that in a second and key learnings from that what does what how does wealth impact you at that age and uh, yes how, how you deal with that <laughs> uh, and then then moving on there's a couple of other things that i'd like to to unpack uh, but let's start off with that part of your journey. So you're 19 years old, uh, <laughs> obviously extremely entrepreneurial, uh, 15 years old doing coding, uh, which is quite yep. exciting for me. My, my youngest boy is six and he's, uh, he's just <laughs> like coding. Um, got his first laptop to start coding at the moment. Oh, that's so fun. He's that makes you it. so happy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's loving it. It's, it's pretty cool to watch. Um, so you, between the ages of 15 and 19, uh, build some value. Is it public? I know the numbers, I believe, but is it public knowledge what that exit was worth? Uh, yeah, it, just shy of two million. I think one point one point eight was the final number. Um, yeah, so nineteen so talk, years old. Talk to me about. I guess before we go into the exit, talk to me about the thought process in actually selling the business. Um, <laughs> what went into that? It was accidental. Um, <laughs> Uh, not really accidental, but so I had won a contract that was very, very sought after by a bunch of my competitors in the industry at the time, um, simply because, you know, I was small. I, you know, if, if I was running that business today, we would call it very agile. Um, and I could do things a lot cheaper. You know, I didn't have the overhead of, of a huge office in downtown LA and blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, the, although I was young, the company, you know, that was offering the contract said, you know, it's a five-year deal. We'll give you six months. If you prove that you can actually take it on, then we'll award the final, the rest of the five years. Um, but we want an out because you're 18 years old, right? <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I took the contract on the initial six months and, you know, we did what we always do, which is we served people really well. And um, we stood behind all the work that we did. And, so the the vice president of the company came to me after three months and said, we're super impressed. We're giving you the full contract. Well, once word got out that I actually, you know, was good at what I do and that I had kept this really prestigious client, um, a few of the, my competitors came to me and made me offers to buy my entire company if I would transition that relationship. Um, because for a lot of the companies, it wasn't actually about the cost. Um, it was just about the relationship. So, and being able to say that they were your client. So, um, with that contract. yeah, exactly right. So, you know, one of them, you know, made me an offer that was really attractive at the time. You know, here I am 
almost 19 years old and and I you know I grew up very poor <laughs> you know we didn't there there were plenty of times where it was a choice between heat in the mountains in the winter and food you know so I just didn't know what to do with a lot of money and um you know, so it took it took a good eight months to organize the company, structure everything, transition the relationship, and do the sale. Um, and you know, I didn't really have an attorney that I trusted. I didn't really have a um, accountant that I trusted or that was advising me. And you know, one point eight million it sounds like a lot of money, but once you account for attorney's fees and taxes and all that kind of stuff, and then all the other things that nobody told me to account for, it's really not as much as you think. And so it was about eight months after the sale closed. Um, I was essentially living in my car and showering at my gym again. (laughs) And that's because I didn't know what to do with money. And so here I have this money and I'm just out kind of spending it and, you know, expensive vacations and not really buying things or assets or even anything to show for it per se. Um, and so that was sort of one of those things where I'm sitting in my, I'm showering at the gym one morning, kind of scratching my head going, wait a second. I had like almost $2 million less than a year ago. What happened? (laughs) That's what, that's one hell of a journey. And I guess before really getting into the money, one thing that you, you spoke about, which was, is interesting for me is how do you, ta- I'm trying to work out people listening to this right now. They're, they're probably thinking when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, winning contracts, mm. there's a, there's this belief of, uh, I can't go and do it because I'm too young. Uh, and mm. the way that, the way that we're trying to build our company here is I don't, I don't care about age or where you went to university. Just show me you've got chops and you've got a, you've got a position in the company. Yeah. How did you battle that? What, what tactics or, um, yeah, what was your strategy about overcoming that age thing? Did people know how old you were when you were winning contracts? Uh, what did the t- was there a team behind it? Just paint the picture of what the company looks like and how do you actually go out and win business when you're 16, 17, 18 years old? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. So, um I, when I started, I, I didn't actually say, oh, I'm going to start a company doing web development. It was sort of like I had these skills and I wanted to make some side money. And so when I was 14, 15 years old, I, I just started talking to business owners in my church um, and saying to them, you know, there's this whole thing called the internet and, you know, are you on it yet? And people would be like, well, no, why would I do that? And it's like, well, are you in the phone book? And they'd say, well, of course I'm in the phone book. That's how people find me. It's like, well, great. This is what the phone book's going to look like in the future. So it's sort of required. And I know it seems crazy now, but let's get you on it. Let's get you set up and let's figure out how we can best leverage it. And so that you're ready to go as soon as, as soon as this sort of takes off. And it was the easiest sell in the world because people at my church knew me and they, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty big church, but they knew me. And um, so they didn't have any concerns about my age and I gave them a stellar deal. Right. And so what happened was did people know my age? Yeah, most of the time, because usually when somebody would meet me, you know, I, I got a lot of referrals in the early days. And I would say 80 plus percent of the business was built on referrals. And so when somebody says to you, hey, this is the person who did my stuff, take a look at it. They love it. They're willing to trust their friend. And so when you sit down with them, you know, I would sit down in, in their office or, or at their store or whatever, and we'd start talking. And, you know, I was always a fairly articulate person. Um, but they would, they would kind of look at me because the, 
the words and the and the concepts that were coming out of my mouth didn't really match this like little blonde cheerleader looking chick, right? Like watching, and, a, uh, like watching a cat bark. It was like yeah, exactly. Don't add up right now. <laughs> well, this isn't coming. And you know, they, inevitably, most people would say, "I know I'm not supposed to ask you this, but how old are you?" And I'd say, "Oh, you know, I'm 16 years old, and I just started driving about four months ago, which is really cool because now I can go to my own meetings and." Um, <laughs> You know, this was all before Zoom and web conferencing and all that. Um, and, you know, by that point, they were they had already, because of the referral from their friend and, you know, because they had sort of built a rapport with me, um, it, it wasn't a problem. So it was never a problem for me. So it was never a problem for anyone else. And I always feel like, you know, I say this a lot to, to entrepreneurs and women that I coach who are like, oh my gosh, I just can't get over whatever this barrier is that I'm experiencing. Sort of like, okay, if it's a problem for you, whatever the barrier is you think you can't get over, what you're projecting and what you're putting out in the world is exactly drawing attention to that thing. <laughs> so if I had concerns about my age when I was younger and doing all of this, other people would have too, but I didn't. It just, this is the thing that I'm doing. And if I come across people who are like, ooh, you're a little bit young, I don't know. I'd be like, okay, they're not my client and that's fine. Um, so I think your, your mindset is 95% of the battle, no matter what you're doing. And especially as a business owner and entrepreneur, you know, you, you will tell yourself stories and you'll buy into them and then you'll project that out there in the world and look for the evidence that it's true. So what I always tell people who, I, who I'm coaching is, you're going to make stuff up anyway, make up stuff that empowers you, like make up stories that empower you. You know, for me, when I was, when I was really young, it was like, Hey, I'm young. I'm fresh. I have a, I have a, my finger on the pulse of things in a way that people who have been doing what they do for a really long time, maybe don't see. And that's the value that I bring in being young and everything else I know. So, you know, make up a story that empowers you, you know, you're going to make it up anyway. Might as well, might as well live into a future that's like bigger than, <laughs> than what you have now. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Like you say, most people tell themselves a narrative and it's a negative one and they become a little bit crippled or paralyzed by it because that's you, right. do, you do believe the narratives yourself, especially when you're an entre right. entrepreneur, uh, you're, you're trying to normally create something that's not in the world. So you have to have that that belief so that's I love right that. i love that whole thing which is tell yourself something that makes you feel good uh love that um yeah listen there's th th there's that part of the of your journey um so <laughs> exit back into the gym showering yep. in the gym <laughs> going hold the phone what just happened uh what happens then uh, well, so I got a job working at Earthlink, um, which was a company uh, that was sort of an early ISP that was started by um, a guy named Sky Dayton. And my mom was a manager of quality assurance there, um, director of quality engineering. And uh, she hooked me up with the development guys over there. And so I started uh, working as a developer, worked there for a few years, uh, mostly because I had never worked a real job. Um, <laughs> And I thought maybe that's some experience that I should have at some point in my career. Um, and uh, a few years later, I actually moved to Colorado um, and realized that I really liked working for myself more than I liked working for someone else. Um, so I started just doing some contracting and consulting and, and that kind of work and slowly built up my second company and got involved with um, a couple with a, another partner um, who was doing some of this taking. T is traditionally uh, 
boxed software and transitioning into online distributions. And so, you know, download speeds were just starting to get faster. So online updates were much easier for for companies to stomach um, because it didn't take you know, hours and hours to download a hundred, you know, a hundred megabytes or whatever anymore. And uh, so we worked on developing out that technology and sort of rolled it into a company that we ended up selling to another company that was based here in Colorado that was buying other companies that were doing pieces of this, this kind of concept that they really liked, ultimately rolling into a much larger um, software company. Um, and yeah, so I, I was I was uh, out here in Colorado doing that, and here I am. You know, I think that one sold for close to four million that time. Um, and so, you know, I again here I am sitting on a, a little chunk of change. And uh, what was the key? Yeah. Just out of curiosity, um, there's <laughs> there's two transactions there in a relatively short period of time. What did you do differently the second time around? Uh, you mean having a bunch of money again? <laughs> no, before the, I guess what I'm asking is before the money came in. Uh, yeah. In terms of the due diligence, the valuation, what were the battle scars? Oh yeah. First time that you corrected the second time. Yeah, I really undervalued myself the first time, and that was not because of any, you know, like we were saying, any negative stories I told myself. I just didn't know what I didn't know, um, and so again, you know, the first time around. I, I didn't understand how valuable it was having a lawyer's a relationship with a lawyer ahead of time and having a relationship with an accountant and a CPA ahead of time. And so when I moved to Colorado and when we started doing this second venture, I got some relationships because that's really the key thing. Um, and so when when it came around and I started, we started getting offers, you know, on what we were doing, I was like, okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to back up. If these are real offers, they'll wait while we figure out what we really have and what we really want and what makes sense for us. And so probably when I sold my first company, I probably could have gotten at least another million in that deal. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't have the, I didn't have good relationships with people that I trusted that I could ask the question. Um, and I, neither time I didn't have a formal valuation. It was really more, you know, what did we think we had? What, what did we say it was worth to us? And then finding a buyer who um, would pay that. And so, um, you know, doing a valuation on a company, you know, remember this is like, you know, the first time I sold was in 99, 2000, I want to say. I'm trying to do math in my head now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think 99, 2000 and then, or 2000, 2001. Um, and then the second time around was like 2006, uh, end of 2006. And so a formal valuation, although there were firms that did that, they really only did it for the big boys. You know, when you were a little startup getting bought up by a bigger company, it was just sort of like, hey, what's the number that makes sense for everybody? And I think a lot of that sort of mentality too, although there was the, the, the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust, people still people in the industry didn't really relate to the bust the way that people outside of the industry did. Um, and what so there were mean? a lot of investors that were still throwing money at startups because there was profit to be made. And so they weren't they weren't nearly as concerned still at that point it wasn't really till 2009 2010 when investors got more concerned about what's the true valuation and comparing it against the rest of the market um versus what's the what's the uh 
the revenue potential on this thing, you know? And so valuation was just, it was less formal back then anyway. (laughs) Going into the second business, did you, because you'd had a transaction under your belt and it feels like, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm projecting here what I'd be thinking is uh, first time round, I'm in the shower, scratching my head going, where's all that money gone? And the next time I'm in this position building my own business, I'm going to get this air quotes right next time. How much of the second business was built in a way to sell? Like, did you go into it with an idea of we're going to sell this and structure the business in a different way? Uh, The way that you communicated the sale was, uh, it sounded like buyers came to you. Did you ever have the plan to sell this and solicitate offers? No. So again, you know, the, the, the scratch in my head part from the first business, what that taught me was to be smarter about when money comes, like when you have windfalls, when there's money, like be smarter. Right. I, I, I've never gone into one of my companies thinking about selling it. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I, you know, and that's also partly because every time I go into a business, I'm bootstrapping it. I'm, I have actually never taken venture capital money, um, just to be totally transparent and fair. Um, because I just feel like the more I know, the more I've done every job in my company and the more I understand where I've been, where I came from, what does my market really look like, the more successful I am. And so I never really set out saying, hey, I'm going to build this thing and I'm going to sell it to somebody. It was always, hey, I'm going to build this thing, have a great income. You know, now we would call that either a legacy business or an ongoing concern. And that was just, it was just like, this is just what I'm doing now. Like, you know, there was, there was very little thought about five years or 10 years down the road. And again, you know, with the, the software, the SAS company that we built, um, that, does bidding for the airlines. So crew and pilot build bidding. Um, again, we didn't set out to build that with the intention of selling it. And, you know, end of last year, early this year, pre COVID, we had actually started shopping buyers for it. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like every entrepreneur, I, I think, I think it's really important now when you're talking, especially when you're getting investors or you're getting VC funding, they need to see an exit because they don't want, an ongoing concern. They don't want, you know, a dividend producing stock. They want you to take their money, take five years, you know, five exit or 10 exit, and then they want out so that they can go invest in something else. And so thinking about an exit ahead of time has become far more important than it ever was, you know, when I was starting companies or, or, or doing things. So yeah, I, I, I just, I just do the thing that's in front of me that seems like the next coolest thing that, that is cool enough to draw my attention away from everything else that is competing for my attention. <laughs> oh, that's quite a good way to summarize it, actually. <laughs> you exit that business. What do you do differently to oh. not end up back in the gym shower? Well, so Adam, <laughs> um, I, I had this that brilliant sound idea, good, by the way, no, no, no. Um, I had this brilliant idea, right? Because a very, very good friend of mine, uh, who has since passed away, unfortunately, um, he was a commercial real estate master, right? He, he at one point he owned like two thirds of the bank buildings in the U S he built nine airports, uh, nine major, uh, international airports in the U S um, very, very bright man when it came to commercial real estate. And so I had this money and I called him and I'm like, Hey Gary, 
I don't want to do the thing I did last time. You're really good with investing money and turning it into other things. Will you help me? And he said, yeah, totally. You know, come out to my course. He, d- he did like a, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday course teaching people how to invest in commercial real estate. And he's like, and then, you know, once you've got the basics down, then I'll help you vet some deals and, and we'll find something good for you to put your money. So this is end of 2006, early 2007. And I probably sent him a good 25 deals over the course of three or four months. And, you know, every time he was like, this one's not good because there's no upside. And this one's not good because the area needs to gentrify more, but you don't have the capital to sort of like, you know, weather that, that gap, right? Or, you know, he, he always had a reason why. And in my mind, you know, here I am, I, I'm 20... 26 years old and I'm, I'm getting more and more frustrated because I see all this money and it's just sitting there in the bank and that frustrates me because I know in the back of my mind that's not what it's supposed to be doing. So finally, you know, there was this one deal. I really, really liked it. I sent it to him. He was like, oh, Cynthia. He's like, you don't have the money in the bank to keep this one going if there were to be a downturn, you know, and this, this is early 2007. There was maybe some rumblings that something wasn't quite right, but people were still sort of everything was fine, you know? <laughs> and, uh, very frothy then. Yeah, very, very good. And so I was like, oh, it's fine. It's not going to happen. You know, the upside on the building is so good. It was 92% rented. Um, it, you know, it had like a $20,000 upside per month. I mean, I was like, this is great. Like, I can't, you know, this is way better than my, than my money just sitting in the bank. So I sort of was like, okay, I got it, Gary. You know, we'll talk again. And I went ahead and did it anyway. Um, it turns out the way the deal was written, there were two other people in the deal. They actually had all of the upside and I had all the liability. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time uh, because again, here I am venturing into something new and it didn't occur to me that there wasn't just a standard way that you buy commercial real estate that, you know, I should have this stuff reviewed by an attorney. So I did, but he was just kind of a guy I found on the internet and whatever. And he was like, well, you know, whatever. So, in early 2008, both of the partners bought out of the, or sold out of the deal. And so for a little while, I was getting the entire upside. And in June of 2008, we were at 93% occupied. By August of 2008, we were at 12% occupied. <laughs> and this was the time where I heard Gary in my head reminding me that... Um, you actually don't have enough to swing the upside because in September, you know, in, in uh, previously until then, I had been getting checks for anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a month, and in September, I wrote my first check, which was like twelve or thirteen thousand dollars, to cover the upside down. And the bank, seeing you know, twenty-five year old, twenty-six year old kid, um, with you know, I, I wasn't working; I was just kind of doing my thing, living off of investments, whatever. Um, they basically called the loan, you know, because now things are starting to tank. They're not certain that I can actually keep up with this thing because, you know, if you don't have a job, how do you keep writing eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a month? And uh, so they called the loan and I sat with the lady at the bank and I cried <laughs> and I was like, can you give me six months? So essentially the deal that we made was they gave me six months to come up with the difference between the loan amount and the amount that they could get for the building because everything was tanking and and the building was worth about two and a half million less than what we owed on it at that point. Mm 
Um, and again, I heard Gary in my head telling me that was going to happen. Um, and so basically I had to come up with two and a half million dollars in six months. And so I got, I sold every investment I had, um, everything I had in retirement. I put, you know, uh, up the mortgage on my house. I, um, put a loan on my car and I was still, at this point. yeah, I, I was all in. I mean, I had nothing and I still had about $350,000 that I owed them. So, uh, being the, the brilliance of credit cards at the time, I actually had about mm, $500,000 in, uh, credit card limits. So I wrote $350,000 in credit card advance checks to cover the rest. <laughs> And uh, how, does, at that how, how six... does this part of this story end? Because I don't think it's going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it took me four years. Um, I, I got, I got, a, I got a good paying job with uh, the company that had bought my company a few years before. Um, they gave me a good developer job, you know. So it wasn't like I was hurting for money or anything. And um, but I was also paying on a crap ton of debt, right? And mm -hmm. so I did a lot of self-reflection work uh, in the summer and the fall of 2009 <laughs> um, and, and read every financial guru. I, I eventually stumbled on Dave Ramsey who has his baby steps. And I remember when I first opened his book and he starts talking about baby steps and I was like, Dave, I don't need baby steps. I need a, I need a miracle man. And, uh, but I, you know, I had, I had been faithful to every other guru and nothing had worked yet. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna be faithful to the baby steps, whatever the hell that is. Right. And within the first four months, I paid off almost a hundred thousand dollars. And I was uh, like, you kept me on the, the day. I don't know. Yeah. Like, so, so the, name, I don't know the baby steps. Yeah. So the baby steps are the first baby step is you put a thousand dollars in the bank. It's just a thousand dollars between you and disaster, but it's not nearly enough. So it keeps that fire lit under your but and then step two is is the debt snowball and so you start with your smallest debt you throw everything you have extra at it in a month you sell stuff I mean you, you like get super creative about bringing an in extra income and everything goes at the smallest debt and you just work them smallest to largest until you've paid them all off and then he has you know baby step three which is uh put putting three to six months away in an emergency fund and the baby step four which is either saving money for a down payment or or uh, yeah, either saving money for a down payment or starting into your IRA and like retirement investing. And then baby step five is paying off the house. Uh, I forget what baby step six is. And then seven is living life like a gazillionaire because you probably are by that point. Um, I love that. So, to be honest, the, the, the thing that I just took away then, and I would have thought you start with the biggest debt first, but I guess there's this momentum thing where you, you yes, pay you want, yeah, you get a win fast. And that was the thing that I had because I had a whole bunch of stuff that was in the like three to $5,000 range. So in that first two months, I got like six cards paid off and they, it was like winning. You know, if you, if you start with the biggest one first, it's, it feels like you're climbing the mountain. You got to start with like, you know, stretching in your basement before you go climb a mountain, you know? So it, it really was backwards from everything else I had read. And I was like, well, maybe that's why it will work. And it totally did. <laughs> yeah. I, so I'm, I'm pausing now. She got me thinking about a couple of things that I'm personally trying to work on my th I'm trying to work on a three-year plan for me financially right now so um, yeah yeah that's super interesting um uh, you've got I, I assume right now you are let me just do some quick math circa 30 and you've got yourself even out of debt at this position in your life is that about right yeah so I, I am uh, I will be 39 in September um, and I let's see 
I've got maybe like five or six thousand dollars that sort of floats every month. Um, that's stuff that I carry, you know, and pay off in the business. But yeah, I have no debt. I've got, you know, uh, probably I would say my overall net worth is somewhere in the range of a million to a million and a half at this point. Um, and that's just blood, sweat, and tears. Um, and be really, really smart and really, really frugal. Uh, I learned how to do a budget when I found Dave Ramsey in 2009. And I have done a budget every single month since and I live by it. And it's just because I know that if I don't have a budget, I am not good with money. And that's what makes me good with money now. You know, and so it, what the great news about that is for me, the next time I have a big win, like, you know, if my SaaS company, you know, at some point in the next year, we'll probably, it, it'll be, you know, the airline industry will be back to where it should be. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll start pursuing a sale for that. That will be the largest one I've ever done. Um, you know, I, I've got a couple of other investments through our incubator that have the potential for, for being big deals. Um, you know, so as, as money comes in now, I know what to do with it and I know how to be smart with it. And that's the thing that's going to save me ultimately and that will have me be able to retire whenever I want to. You know, I mean, I'm not at that place yet, but um, I will be in the next 10 years or less for sure. It, it sounds like you've done a lot as an entrepreneur <laughs> and, and not just from the, the track record of uh, building and exiting businesses, but even today uh, from the way that you explain where you're allocating funds and distributing risk, it feels like you like to be part of lots of things and I guess have your fingers in lots of pies, but you, it sounds like you enjoy the excitement of business and entrepreneurship compared to just letting money sit in a bank and dwell. You, you like to put it to work. It sounds like. Yeah, I do. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, so I have a, I have an addictive personality. Um, I'm very, very lucky that I discovered work and, and loved work and found something that I loved in the, in the work world very, very early because, you know, it's, it's no longer, a, you know, I used to always wonder there were people in my family who were addicted to alcohol and addicted to drugs and all these things. And, and, you know, that's never been a, a pull for me, but it's because my addiction is work, right? Um, and I, I get bored. Like I'm somebody who's really good at creating, helping creative people build a thing and get it to a particular point. And then when it's just sort of like that day-to-day -day humming along, keep it running, I find other people who are good at that and I transition that and then I go build the next thing because that's where my zone of genius is, right? Um, so I guess that's so, a great segue for me to move into what you do, <laughs> what you do with your coaching right now. Talk to me about that. And I guess, uh, to, I guess to give you a little bit of a frame of reference is I hired my first executive coach uh, about 18 months ago because I, yeah. kept, I kept hitting a ceiling of 12, yes. 13, 15 people in the company. And I just didn't have the skill set as a CEO to get past that. So I wanted to, I wanted to improve. Um, yeah. I want to be the person that keeps driving the business forward, but kept hitting that ceiling yep. and then got so much value from it uh, in terms of, um, me personally, that I wanted to then learn the skill set of coaching. Uh, so for me, when I'm 40, I want to become an investor and a coach to small business owners. I uh, love that's that. My, that's my plan in the next 10 years. So I actually I start that. my coaching diploma in two months' time. So I'm pretty, oh, good pretty for excited you. about that. Yeah. Can you talk to me about why you moved into coaching and I guess what you get out of it and the sorts of clients that you support. <laughs> and because when you explained at the top of the show, it sounded like it was extremely focused and niche. Like you help this sort of person solve yes. these problems. Yes. Can you just talk me through that. And this is again, selfish for me. I want to learn how yeah. you do that. 
Like, how did you end up on that niche and, and how's it worked out? So um, I ended up, so, so I help entrepreneurs who are not techies or business owners in a non-tech space turn their ideas for apps, websites, software into real businesses with real profit and high margins. Um, so that that's one side. And how did I, how did I get into that? Well, that's what I've always done, mm -hmm. right? So um, I, I, my first probably handful of clients that I worked with years and years and years ago, uh, people were coming to me and they were like, oh my gosh, you've had successful exits. You know, you've built these companies, you've worked in technology. I mean, I, I've been a developer from the, from the UI part of the stack all the way down to the database and back. Most of my career, I was the one building the initial technology that jump-started all my companies. So, you know, and I've worked for other people and I've been in development or leadership positions in, in engineering organizations at small and large companies. Like I've had all this experience. And so people were coming to me and saying, Hey, I want to build this startup. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Can you help me? And it sounded like it should be pretty easy because I made the mistaken assumption that everybody's like me. And when they decide to do something, they put 185% of themselves into it. Right. Well, people were getting really, really mixed results. Some people were getting really great results. Some people were getting horrible results. Some people were failing outright. Some people were sort of middle of the road. And it was like, as I started looking at what were they doing, what actions were they taking, how are they thinking about their business, I just started to notice the things that I had never noticed as inherent traits in myself that made me successful. And once I started figuring out what those things were, that's what I coached you. I'm like, these are the things you have to do in order to be successful. And like I said earlier on, 95 plus percent of it is your mindset. It's how you talk to yourself. It's how you talk about yourself. It's how you present yourself to the world. Um, I mentioned that I also do coaching for women in technology who are, who are uh, one shattering the glass ceiling. That's what I call it. So whatever, whatever path they want to take, whether they want to be like a, a principal architect and, and do the, the techn technical path, or if they want to do a leadership path and be a CTO or a director of engineering or, or, or something like that. Or a lot of women come to me when they want to start companies and they just don't know where to start or what to do. Um, again, I do that because I know where they've been and I know exactly how to get them in the right mindset. You know, I know how to teach them the things that men do in, when they're interviewing or when they're pitching their companies for, for uh, fundraising or when they're pitching their companies to clients. There's things that men do that women don't. And Make I know an how to, yeah. So for example, when interviewing, men are really, so, so a man will apply for a job if he thinks he's at least 50% qualified. Women wait until they're 80% qualified or more for a job before they even apply. Men in that interview will spend the entire time talking about how the 50% they have makes them perfect for the job. Women will, talk, will spend the most of the time talking about how the 20% they don't have, they're going to figure it out and make it up. And what that does is it creates a mindset in the person interviewing you that they're going to have to work to pull you along versus you are going to push them to the level of success that they want to have in the organization they're trying to build. And it's not about lying and it's not about hiding, you know, it's not, it's not about hiding what you do or don't know. It's about augmenting and highlighting and using your skills and your strengths to prove that you have the confidence to do the job. And that's really the difference. 
but people don't know that. And, and if you're a woman going into interviewing, you know, you're doing your, your thing that feels right to you. And I'm putting right in quotes, um, which is to be honest about what you don't know instead of bragging about how amazing you are. Because we can look at your resume and know what you don't know. But what I'm looking for is somebody who has the confidence and the tenacity and the ability and they know that they have the ability to do the job. Because if you're questioning it, that makes me as the hiring manager question it even more. <laughs> Completely agree. And I guess out of curiosity, how did you, how did you get that insight? Uh, is that from previous roles? I've interviewed a lot of people, okay. like a lot, a lot of people. And there have been so many times where I have known really brilliant women and I know them in my personal life or in other, you know, networking relationships. And then they come interview for me and I'm like, wow, you do not come off at all in your interview. And again, just kind of looking at that and saying, okay, I know that guy's full of crap but he interviews really well. And I know you actually have the skills to do this job. So I'm going to hire you anyway, even though you interview terribly, but why do you interview terribly? And I just kind of started looking at that. Um, and, you know, again, just power of deduction, I guess, you know. And l last question on this one for me, something I'm always curious about acquisition, especially <laughs> for a world that I want to enter in the future. When yes. you're trying to find clients or clients are trying to find you, You've mm -hmm. obviously carved out this very specific niche, which I think is perfect from a marketing and commerce perspective because people yes. gravitate towards you. But how did you start off in this space finding your first clients? Or was it like your first business purely from referrals because you've been around the block in a few businesses? Some of it was referrals. I've just recently gotten in, you know, I, I would say probably this business in the form that it's in has really, I started Rika Technologies a little over three and a half years ago. Um, but we we started as an incubator. And so our early clients were entrepreneurs who needed a tech co-founder to help them get their product to market. And that was sort of when I started to figure out that the piece they really needed wasn't the tech piece. They needed the product market fit and they needed coaching and they needed to learn how to be CEOs talking to other CEOs powerfully about their business. And, you know, if they weren't the right personality for CEO, they needed to discover that and find a partner who was. And so this iteration, you know, the, the way that the business is now has really only been the last year and a half or so. And I just got to a point where I figured out how to do marketing and advertising and the niche really matters. So focusing in, narrowing in, you would think that that's a bad thing. And I, I hear this all the time. And when I work with entrepreneurs on product market fit, they're like, but anybody could be a customer. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's great. But if, if anybody could be a customer, nobody hears themselves in the way you pitch the business or in the way that your marketing copy or ad copy is written, right? So you have to be specific and the more exclusive you get, the more people either recognize themselves immediately and it's not a question they need to work with you or it starts to feel kind of exclusive and that makes people really want to work with you too. <laughs> So they'll they'll even come to me and say, well, I mean, I've I've done a tech startup before, but I really screwed it up, and so I'd really love to work with you and do your 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 uh, your product market fit and idea validation stuff. Um, and even though I've been in tech before, I promise I won't let that color my view if you'll just work with me. You get people, <laughs> and I so love, I love that. You get people basically closing themselves. Yeah, exactly. They're like they're explaining to me why they're a great fit for my program, right? Which is which is absolutely where you want to be if I was trying to be everything to everyone, that wouldn't be possible. 
yeah, and it's an upward, it's an uphill battle when that leads yeah. to your inbox. Then um, convince them. Uh, That's compared, right. Compared to resonating with them on an, I guess, on an emotional level through your advertising and copy, that they go, this person is speaking my exact truth and problem. It, yeah, there's a lot of the hurdles. And the other thing that I'll say is, a lot of coaches spend a lot of time talking about their qualifications and why they're awesome. Nobody cares about that. What your co- what your your clients care about is do you understand where I have been? So for example, if I heard this, uh, one of my executive coaches uses this story and I'm, I'm totally repeating it. So um, when he hears it, I'll have to make sure, <laughs> tell him I did this. But he says, you know, you could be walking down the street and you're like talking to your friends and you're explaining how you have this twinge in your shoulder and it kind of like radiates down into your elbow and like swirls around there and then it shoots right back up your arm, back into your shoulder. And you're like, do you guys know, I mean, have you ever experienced that? And you're like explaining this, some rando walking by on the street could hear this and go, oh my gosh, you mean the thing where it kind of starts here and when it gets into your elbow, it's like sort of twingy and tingly and then it goes right back up in your shoulder and you go, yes. And there's this random person. And what do you say? What do you do about it? They're not a doctor. They're just some dude walking on, walking past you on the street that heard you saying that. But because they get it, you immediately feel like they must have the answer, right? As a coach talking about the the world that your your ideal client is living in where they are now and where they want to be and talking about the frustration of the now and the amazingness of the where they want to be that's all it takes and they will get that you know because you're describing how they feel and that's what they care about is i feel like this now and i want to feel like that who can help me <laughs> i love that and not not just that message in terms of speaking on their level but uh, for you as an individual, you've you've clearly lived this to a point where it just comes so naturally out of you when you speak about it. And I think uh, on a very macro level, that's one of the most enjoyable parts of this conversation for me. Is <laughs> there's the nuances and the tactics that you're talking about, but it, it's just clear that you've you've gone through a lot in the world of business and entrepreneurship, uh, and you're really packaging up your personality into your coaching. Not nothing new, really. It's just no. what you've what you've gone through and just sharing that experience. That's exactly and, right. And Cynthia, on that note, if someone's listening to this right now and think, I'm resonating right now with Cynthia, how do they learn more about you? Where can people go to, to I guess, to carry on this conversation? <laughs> um, everything starts at, at the website, rikatech.com, R-A-I-K-A-T-E-C-H.com. And from there, you can get to, uh, we have a couple of different podcasts. I'm, I guest on some podcasts like this one a lot. Um, social media, all of our offers, you know, there's a link right there to book a call. And, and, you know, I get on the phone with you for 45 minutes to an hour, figure out where are you, where do you want to be, what's stopping you from getting there. And we just figure out whether or not it would be a good fit if, if you think you want to work with me in one of my coaching capacities. Um, you know, and a lot of entrepreneurs um, that are looking at accelerator programs or looking at going out for funding, uh, I can tell you that people who go through our program and do product market fit and idea validation get way better results with anything else that they do um, because we get you to the reality of what you're really trying to build. And uh, a lot of the accelerators position themselves that way, but in order to um, really maximize the time, it's better if you have the foundations underneath you. So. Cynthia, I absolutely love that. And I guess one one thing that I just want to ask is, where does the name Rika come from? <laughs> so Rika is the Japanese word for fire made from lightning. So the way I describe what I do is other people have great ideas. 
I create the wildfire from those ideas. What a message to leave it on. Cynthia, you've been an absolute best. <laughs> Guys, you heard it here. Head over to that website, Riker Technologies. Is that right? Yes, rikatech.com. Rikatech.com. Uh, booking yep. a call if anything you've heard from Cynthia has resonated with you. And when you book that call, please drop me a line. It's adam at nbs.fm. Let me know how you got on because I'd love to hear the follow-up to any of these journeys. Cynthia, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam.